Uh, the passage we will be looking at this evening, uh, you can find in the back of your service sheet, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 19. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Thank you very much, Sukan, and to all who have uh, led and shared up to this point. Thank you, Chris, for your really moving uh, testimony. We've all come to love you very much, and you've managed to empty my house of most of its books, and uh, I've got uh, just them all written down exactly what they are. Um, you spoke about your, your, your cancer. We're very, very thankful that you're alive, and your family... Uh, I'm massively so. When you were speaking, I caught the sight of two names on that war memorial. These are just names until you visit their graves. And I visited the grave of one of these people uh, in a cemetery in uh, uh, the, the Ypres this summer. Their names are Alex Skugel and Frank Skugel. They died on the same day, the two and the only two sons of a family who lived in a street just down the road. Uh, 
And what that struck me when I saw their names and listened to you is how fragile life is and how urgently important it is while we journey through this life with all of its risks to make peace with God because that matters for all eternity. Chris, it was a joy to hear your testimony. You spoke of your parents. You spoke of your family. You spoke of your circumstances. You spoke of your mates, many of whom are here tonight, Christians and non-Christians. And all of them have a part to play in who you are. And you count them all as close friends. And behind every testimony, there is a personal story. But there is something that unites every single Christian testimony. And we read the words of the Apostles' Creed, these core truths of the Christian faith. And there are things that are essential. What the Apostle Paul describes as a first priority and first importance in the Christian faith. And what we're going to do tonight, just for a very few minutes, is just take this passage and a few verses in it, and if you pick it up, it's on the back of the service sheet, we'll just focus on what Paul, one of the apostles, one of the individuals set apart and given authority by the Lord Jesus to tell us what Jesus' gospel is. We're not here tonight to listen to Chris's version of the gospel or my version, or Roger J., or anyone's version of the gospel, that would be, well, it might be interesting, but we couldn't stake our life on it. We're here tonight to listen to Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who came to earth, who died, was raised, and reigns, and will return his version of his gospel, given to the apostles, one of whom was Paul. Now, six core truths as to what the gospel is. But let me just reread a few of these verses and uh, just so that you see what I am saying is from the Bible. This is from the Bible, the Word of God, one of the apostles. Uh, and they were given uh, special uh, authority by Jesus. They lived and worked around the time that he lived. They are eyewitnesses. So let me read to us again, or with us again, if you pick up the sheet from verse 3, that little number 3 on the left-hand side, just a few verses down. For what I received, this is Paul writing, I passed on. That's just a simple statement to say that he is giving us what he was given. As of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Uh, Cephas is another name for the Apostle Peter. Cephas means rock, steady one. Uh, the Apostle uh, Peter. And then to the twelve, that's the other Apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. That's a powerful statement. Because this was written when these people were still alive. You just don't say that kind of thing if you're not speaking about something that is factually true. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, that means died, 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and at last he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. What Paul means there is he was outside of the typical kind of people that you would expect to be an apostle. For I am the least of the apostles, he says. And yet somebody that God used singularly to communicate the truth of the gospel. Now that's the passage we're looking at, particularly verses 3, 4, and 5. Here is uh, Jesus' core truth number one as to what his gospel is through the words of his apostles. The gospel is Jesus. Now, I'm using these words as carefully as I can. Christian faith is Jesus. It's all about him. He is the focus. He is the object of faith. A Christian who is someone who is in a living, or we might say saving, relationship with Jesus, who is alive, Jesus. A Christian is someone who knows Jesus as their saviour. And if you hear a Christian give their testimony, as Chris did, it might sound that there is a familiarity, not a casualness, but a familiarity between that individual and Jesus. And that's right. It's a real living relationship. Now, you might hear it said that a Christian is someone who follows Jesus, and that is true. A Christian is someone who follows Jesus' teaching, who lives their life like Jesus, whose priorities are Jesus' priorities, but you do not become a Christian by following. And that's so critical. You become a Christian by faith. Following follows faith. Following authenticates faith. How do we know that Chris is a Christian? Because his life has changed. You become a Christian by faith. First faith, then following. Faith in Jesus, not in an abstract way, in a concrete, flesh and blood way. Faith in Jesus as a person. Faith in this person alone. Faith in what this person, Jesus, did for us. You might be thinking, why am I calling Jesus a person? Because he is the Son of God. He is both. He is the eternal Son of God and a man who lives. Faith in what Jesus did for us. Now, what was it he did for us that is of first importance? Here's core truth number two. There are six. Okay? Don't be discouraged by the fact that there are six. Number two, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. 
Now, immediately, we might, if we have any sense of what the word sin means, feel that's quite a pejorative thing to say, a kind of negative thing to say. Chris has already said it. (laughs) But just read what's written here. That's what matters. You see it there at the beginning of a little bit that we read again, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ... So Christian faith is about Jesus. Christ and Jesus mean the same thing. That Christ... What's the apostle going to say as of first importance that he died for our sins? Now, what is sin? Immediately, we think of sin as things that we do. Sin is much more fundamental than that. Sin is our nature, our disposition as humanity, as human beings. And this is persuasive because if you think of your own heart as I think of mine, it's true. Sin is who we fundamentally are as human beings, that there is something fundamentally ill within us. Wrong. Something that is responsible for a great deal of stuff that is, well, stuff that is at a micro level, just damaging to those around us, and stuff that is a macro level causes conflicts like uh, we pray for. Sin is what the Lord Jesus calls our fundamental problem. It works itself out in our actions, our thoughts, our speech. But it cannot simply be our thoughts and our speech and our actions. It has to emanate from something within us, something within our nature, something within our kind of core or inner being, how we're wired. Now, here's something that Jesus says to show us that we are sinners. And that includes the best of us. Listen, he said, the Lord, this is speaking about his Father, the Lord our God is one. There's only one God. And you shall love him with all your hearts, all your minds, all your souls, with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Perfect love for God, perfect love for our fellow humanity, that is what God requires of us. And that is what shows us how wrong our inner beings and hearts are. Now, does that not make the statement, you shall love the Lord your God with every fiber of your being and mind and heart, and you shall love your neighbor with a selflessness as if it were you loving yourself? Does that not, if that is the standard for kind of fellowship or knowing God, make God out to be a vindictive and punitive God? The answer to that question And and 
in our popular culture, it might be, of course it does. Well, who are we to say that? I think a sharper answer, perhaps, is it doesn't make God out to be a vindictive and punitive God. It makes God out to be God. And we need to come to terms with who God is. And what he determines is necessary to be right with him, reconciled to him, in order to escape the consequence of our sin. And the consequence of our sin, who we are as human beings, is that we all face eternal judgment. Now that ratchets things up a degree. Surely, if the consequence of sin in the heart of humanity is to face eternal judgment, surely that makes God out to be a vindictive and punitive God. Now let's consider that question in a different way. God does not, and thank God that God does not, change who he is to accommodate himself to us. But thank God that he, out of love, provides for us in his Son, Jesus Christ, the means of our forgiveness. Sin is our greatest problem, for which God in love has provided the answer in his Son, the Lord Jesus. Christ died for our sins. Now, the death of Jesus is one of the two central events in Jesus' life, the other being his resurrection. Jesus' death is not a matter of first importance because it is the supreme example in human history of sacrificial service for others. Why is a cross used on a war memorial? Because there is no greater example in all of human history than sacrificial service for others. But there is something far more fundamental in the cross of Christ than that fundamental as it is. And that is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And that's a whole different category from Jesus Christ died to show us an example. He died for our sins. And that is not an example that any human being can and has ever followed. It is a unique act. Along with his resurrection, the most important act in all of human history. Christ 
died for our sins. Let me illustrate what that means for Chris using the powerful words of whoever it was who preached or spoke in that marquee that you described as a chapel. I was trying to get my head around a chapel and a marquee. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, and the kind of dialogue between God the Father and Jesus the Son, I must die or Chris will not be forgiven. What happened when Jesus died is he took upon himself all of your sin. All of it. Past, present, and future. And he took upon himself your sinful nature. Chris and Robin and all of us who are Christians, our sinfulness was imputed to him. He bore it. And he took, when he died, the judgment of God, the eternal judgment of God that is the consequence for a human being of being unforgiven. He took that upon himself. And he bore, as a perfect human being, your sin and God's judgment. And therefore, the eternal judgment of God was extinguished. It's gone. That's what it means that Christ died for our sins. Number three, the gospel is that Jesus was raised from the dead. There it is in black and white. You see it there, verse four, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Why does it say that he was buried? Because he was dead. He was dead and buried and raised, dead and buried and raised. Now, Jesus, now, you, the room will be divided here as to those who believe that with all their hearts and those who cannot get their heads around it. But let's all suspend our questions in disbelief and think what a glorious and significant thing it would be that if God has raised his son from death to life, and we have before us in human history, not just the death of the son of God for sin, but the resurrection of the same, that there are, the death process has been reversed in a man's life in history. What extraordinary news. Moreover, his resurrection from the dead is the promise and guarantee for all Christians that he will be, they will be raised from dead to everlasting life. Now, Chris said something extraordinarily powerful, and he said it in just a few words because he was looking at his mates and his family, and I kind of said to him, are you going to be able to say that? What an astonishing thing he said that as a 16-year-old boy he had supernatural peace because if the worst thing happened, what is the worst thing on earth? Death. 
for anyone but for a 16-year-old lad. Why did he have peace? That is inexplicable. Were it not connected to the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? It is a matter of first importance that Christ died for our sins. It is a matter of first importance that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. It is a matter of extraordinary importance that there is a man who not only has died for our sins, but has put death into reverse. Number four, speeding up. The death and resurrection of Jesus happened as promised. Striking little phrase. According to the Scriptures, what that means is the Scriptures of the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures, to which were added the New Testament. We're reading from the New Testament here in Paul's letter. And what is... What is the matter of first importance here? That these events happened according to the Scriptures. It is a matter of first importance because these events, the death and resurrection of Jesus, are not only written about retrospectively. They are written about prospectively. History records these events in anticipation. And in reflection, our calendar splits around Christ's 33 years, B.C. and A.D. Number five. That's encouraging, isn't it? That was a fast four. It's like a car, fourth gear, fifth gear, sixth gear. There's a big one, number five. I mean, big in terms of imports, not length. The death and resurrection of Jesus is factually true. Now, I don't think any of us have any difficulty in believing that Jesus actually died. We might have difficulty in believing why he did. But people find it difficult to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so they should because it doesn't happen. It is miraculous. Only God can raise people from the dead, and he did. How do we know he did? Because he is God, but how do we know he did? Because all through the pages of Scripture, again and again and again, there is evidence from people who were there and who saw. And if when you wrote this book, and many or most of the 500 people, three times the number in this room, it weren't, if it wasn't true, it's just implausible to conclude that this is some mighty hoax that billions of people in the world 
believe him with all their hearts. Number six, Jesus is alive in heaven and offers us forgiveness of our sins and resurrection to eternal life. All I want to do to complete these six principles is to say that he is alive. Let me summarize what the gospel is, the core truths. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. The gospel is that Jesus was raised from the dead. The death and resurrection of Jesus happened as promised. The death and resurrection of Jesus are factually true. Jesus is alive in heaven and offers us forgiveness of our sins and resurrection to eternal life. And so the gospel is good news. It is wonderful news. For what is offered to us is the forgiveness of our sins and resurrection to everlasting life. And that is wonderful news because it addresses our greatest problem, sin, and the terrible prospect of being unforgiven, which is eternal judgment. What is offered to us? That's too weak. What is held out to us from a man hanging on a cross and from an empty tomb is the forgiveness of our sins and resurrection to eternal life. How do we receive it? Through faith in Jesus. What is faith? Faith is recognizing that we need it. Faith is recognizing that forgiveness and life eternal is to be found in one man alone. Faith is then turning to him empty-handed. Empty-handed. And when you contemplate that, so much baggage falls away, like it's got to do with religion or how I live, or what my heritage is, or which country I was born in. It has only to do with Jesus Christ. And faith is humbly like a child, trusting in him. And it's striking that Chris as a teenager, was able to grasp all that there is to grasp. But is that not naive when he still is grasping it? And there are people here who are not 16, who believe it with all their hearts. Now, if you are a Christian, then rejoice and be thankful. If you are not, my plea to you is to give it serious airtime. If you're here as a mate of Chris, ask him to read the Bible with you. Help him delay his next 
set of essays. I suspect, Chris, that you've got a whole pile of excuses that you get off with when you say you're just charming. But never, ever miss the opportunity if Jesus in heaven has intersected with you on earth tonight to give your life to him. I'll pray a prayer. It's nothing to do with me or my words. It's between you and the eternal God. If you want to join in that prayer, please do so. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the good news, the wonderful news of the gospel. Forgiveness of my sins and resurrection to everlasting life through Jesus. I recognize that I need forgiven because without forgiveness I face the terrible prospect of eternal judgment. I understand that I can have that forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Jesus, who died for my sins and was raised from the dead. And so, Jesus, I come to you humbly and sincerely to receive that forgiveness and to have eternal life. Help me to live my life from now on in thanksgiving and in joy. For Jesus' sake.